You're watching Global BC. This is Global News Hour at 6. Good evening. Thanks very much for joining us. We start with the latest breaking developments in a deadly crash in Manitoba. A semi truck colliding with a bus, leaving at least 15 people dead. Our Jordan Armstrong is live in studio with the details. And Jordan, the majority of people on that bus were seniors. They were, Chris, and reportedly heading to a casino in the town of Carberry in southwestern Manitoba. This was a fiery crash late this morning with a large debris field, and investigators are just beginning the painstaking task of going through it all. The bus was traveling south on Highway 5 and was in the process of crossing the eastbound lanes of the Trans-Canada when it was struck by an eastbound semi-truck. The crash scene about an hour and a half west of Winnipeg. What I can confirm right now is that a bus carrying approximately 25 people collided with a semi at the intersection of Highway 1 and Highway 5. The individuals in the bus were from Dauphin and surrounding areas. At least 15 people are confirmed dead, but that number could very well rise as 10 people were taken to hospital, some with very severe injuries. The crash aftermath was so serious that all available emergency resources in western Manitoba have been deployed to the scene. The biggest challenge on these types of investigations is just to keep emotions in check for police officers. That's, that's the biggest thing. We have a tough job to do out there, and as you can understand, there's a lot of, lot of grieving, a lot of hurt going on by the, you know, the people that are on scene, including the first responders, the ambulance, the police, the firefighters. Now, the crash certainly has echoes of the Humboldt Broncos tragedy five years ago. It's also brought renewed focus on the safety of uncontrolled at-grade highway intersections, and there are many of those on the prairies, Chris. Sure are. No doubt they'll be looking at that, yeah. and we appreciate the update there, Jordan. Thanks very much. All right, uh, we'll continue with some good news for residents of Tumbler Ridge now that the evacuation order for that district has been rescinded. Uh, people affected by the order are now starting to return to their homes. The community of Tumbler Ridge remains under an evacuation alert. Residents need to be ready to leave again with very little no notice if fire conditions there change. The West Kiskatinaw fire is currently estimated at about 250 square kilometers. That's just over 25,000 hectares and continues to burn out of control east of the town. Highway 52 North and 52 East are both now considered safe and have reopened. Access, though, to the backcountry is still limited in the area because of the fire risk. No, it's uh, not stages, but we are really hoping residents take their time coming home. I mean, it's 2,400 people, a small community, like you said, but, you know, we need people to take their time. Uh, the town is here, and, and we're looking forward to welcoming those residents back. Extremely proud. You know, we've heard all the stories, people helping each other out. The other communities with the ESS and the reception, like, other societies in Dawes Creek doing free things for our residents. And to me, we're a family here. I've said it for, for years that I've lived here. It's uh, one big family. And you see it. A crew of more than 40 firefighters, 44 pieces of heavy equipment, and nine helicopters is still on scene fighting that fire. Well, nearly two years after a wildfire wiped out almost all of the town of Lytton, there is finally some hope that reconstruction will soon begin. Richard Zussman has the latest that the town's state of emergency is over. Across Lytton, fences line the roadway, a constant reminder of fire destroying the town nearly two years ago. 
nobody understands why it's taken so long. Um, they just want to see things hurry up. All those in favor? Aye. Aye. On Wednesday night, the Village's Council voting unanimously right. to end the local On state of emergency, meaning starting next week, these fences will start coming down opening the door for the rebuild to begin. They can now get onto their properties. They can, you know, start their planning for rebuilding. Saying that, there's still some work going on in the village. There's still some soil remediation. Much of the delay has been due to remediation work, coupled with frustrations no one at the province took the lead on the rebuild. Plans are for the RCMP, the fire station, the grocery store to all be rebuilt. As of now, no shovels have hit the ground on construction. Homes will come back as well, but some in the community have moved on. For a long time, I pictured it exactly the same as it was, but the reality, it's not going to be. Things have to be different. BC United MLA Jackie Taggart represents the area. She says she's knocked on so many doors here at the legislature looking for who's in charge of the rebuild that even now she hasn't received good enough answers. Uh, the province has put literally tens of millions of dollars into this uh, project so far. Uh, likely uh, more support will be needed, but I'm very glad to hear that uh, uh, there are now people in Lytton that are in the position to be able to start rebuilding. This is a government that stood up and said, we've got your back, we're going to build back better, um, you know, don't you worry. And two years later, two years later, we still don't have a shovel in the ground. There are some buildings still standing, including this church, where last Sunday locals gathered for the first time since before the fire, June 30th, 2021. A sign for the community. It will be the first of many community gatherings to come. Richard Zussman, Global News, Victoria. Coastal communities are still struggling with Highway 4 on Vancouver Island likely to remain closed until at least the 24th. Businesses and charities have been scrambling to keep their doors open. And as Kylie Stanton reports, the situation is highlighted a need for better access to those coastal communities. After more than a week, these shelves are full. A major relief for Major Michael Ramsey. Today was absolutely wonderful, right? Loaves and Fishes from Nanaimo was able to send in a truck with some supplies and, uh, and uh, I think we'll be eating tacos for a month. The group made the trip along the alternate route, a truck full of food destined for agencies in need. Well, if food banks aren't getting the food they regularly get, the, the people they serve won't be either, right? So definitely makes a difference. It's just one of the many acts of kindness keeping the coastal communities affected by the highway foreclosure open and operating. What's becoming more difficult with every passing day. We're hearing more and more from businesses how this road closure is impacting their business. With only this one narrow gravel road moving essential goods, needs aren't being met. Sand Group now using its deep sea port to work around the issue, barging in supplies, trying to keep everyone afloat, including the catalyst mill. We got one barge unloading for the paper excellence right now. By bringing it in by sea, it's much safer. Others are taking to the sky. Since the road closed, Island Health has booked more than 200 seats on flights in and out of the community. Doctors, nurses and health leaders stepping up to ensure there are no interruptions to service, including cancer treatments. The chemotherapy was prepared in Nanaimo and then uh, by plane, uh, we brought the necessary supplies. These wins, something to celebrate. What's now possible here at Twin City 
after a fellow brewery out of Cumberland stepped up, flying in a key ingredient. So we ended up getting the malt here yesterday afternoon. We brought it to the brewery. Uh, we milled it uh, for our recipe today and we brewed today. But as the closure wears on, the question of better access begins to weigh more heavily on everyone's minds. It's the only road in, it's two lanes. BC's Minister of Transportation saying Tuesday another route is something to consider. You know, what would be uh, both possible and uh, feasible. But the priority right now is getting this highway reopened. Everyone on the other side left counting the days. Kylie Stanton, Global News. An arrest has now been made in connection with a fatal stabbing outside of Surrey High School last fall. IHIT says the suspect was taken into custody Wednesday in the death of 18-year-old Mehuk Preet Sethi. Sethi was killed in an incident outside Tamanawa Secondary over the noon hour on November 22nd. A 17-year-old suspect was taken into custody a short time later, but then released. And the homicide team isn't saying if this was the same person arrested on Wednesday. Investigators are urging anyone with information on the case to please come forward. Tempers flared today during a presentation at the police board meeting involving the reinstatement of school liaison officers. Kamal Kuramali joins us now with more on this. Kamal, it's been a controversial issue. You were in there and it got dramatic today. It got heated for sure. Tensions flared over the return of police presence at schools and resulted in the VPD's African Descent Advisory Committee storming out. Now, members of the racialized committee were under the impression that they could vote on the school liaison officer program, but when they found out that there would be no vote and the program would be pushed ahead, well, mayhem ensued. Everyone in this room, whether they are police our trustees, our, uh, you know, lawyers, or whatever, know that we live in a society and a culture that is biased and bigoted, and particular people are targeted more than others. Now, back in November, the Vancouver School Board approved bringing back school liaison officers, but they don't have the final say. The police board then approved the budget for it, and city council also gave it the green light. Now, today's board meeting was about a presentation highlighting what the program rollout would look like. It would include smaller sidearms, less formal uniforms, unmarked vehicles, and cultural awareness training. And th now, the presentation also highlighted that it surveyed all parties involved that includes students as well as advisory committees. And some of those VPD advisory committees were against the program, like the African Descent Advisory Committee, citing concerns that the VPD had not done its due diligence and had not interviewed students, racialized students, uh, who may have had negative experiences with police officers. Now, during the last board meeting, one of the members said there would be a vote on the police liaison program, so the advisory committee showed up today to vote on that program once they found out that there was no vote and a decision would uh, go ahead. There was plenty of backlash uh, claiming that they were silencing the black community and one board member even resigned over the issue. I'm feeling deeply disappointed. Um, the department does a lot of really good and important work and we as a board failed today by not proceeding with the public debate and vote that I expected to see happen today. 
Now, Mayor Ken Sims said the program will go ahead and will be rolled out in September, but he does say that the board will continue to listen and uh, possibly make changes as the program rolls out. But many others, Chris, feel like that they will not be heard as they saw in there. And uh, so far, VPD has not given an exact price tag as to how much this program will cost. Back over to you. All right, we'll continue to find some of those answers and follow the story. Kamal, mm -hmm. thanks very much for that. Sentencing arguments continue for a woman who attacked her foe inside a Vancouver courtroom. Catherine Shen has been found guilty of all four counts she faced, including attempted murder. As Ramina Dea reports, one question remains to be settled, and that's how long will Shen serve in prison? Crown counsel and defense a decade apart in what constitutes a fit sentence for Catherine Shen. Crown making the case for 16 to 18 years in prison. Defense says six years is more appropriate. Two years ago, Shen walked into Supreme Court in Vancouver with a hammer and fish knife with a six-inch blade in her purse. Shen's bags never checked, which is not required at this courthouse. No metal detector either. Jing Lu was stabbed multiple times inside courtroom 32. Her injuries life-threatening, but she lived. At least 10 downward blows with each weapon, the knife and hammer, according to the evidence. Lu in tears when she gave her victim impact statement in court last month. Even when I was lying on the court floor bleeding, Shen was saying, it's her fault, it's her fault. Until today, I'm still shocked and fail to understand how a civil case evolved into an event that almost took my life. Thanks to the quick action of court sheriffs, Shen was disarmed and taken into custody. The terrifying incident going down just before a contempt of court hearing was set to begin in relation to an ongoing verbal war on social media for over a decade. Shen and Liu, who were in their 50s at the time, met on a Chinese website intended to help new immigrants connect. Judge Catherine Denhoff finding Shen guilty on all four counts, including attempted murder, aggravated assault, assault with a weapon, and possession of a weapon. But Denhoff rejected the defense of NCRMD, not criminally responsible due to mental disorder. It is not enough that Ms. Shen had a mental disorder. Rather, the mental disorder had to have been so severe as to render Ms. Shen incapable of understanding that her actions were wrong, said Denhoff. Shen's mental health is still a live issue, though, in determining how much jail time she will receive. The judge found Shen did suffer from depression and anxiety at the time of the vicious attack. But the sentencing hearing came to an abrupt halt because Denhoff wants to hear more evidence from one of Shen's psychiatrists. The proceedings will continue November 29th. Romina Dea, Global News. Carving up a school playground. Some parents say the plan to sell half the field is deeply flawed. And they're demanding answers from the school board before it's too late. Story next on the News Hour. Cutting loose from an old career, how artist Randy Gauthier is carving out a new one later on the News Hour. Right now, though, parents at an East Vancouver Elementary School are angry the Vancouver School Board could sell a big part of their sports field. About half the playground is considered surplus. And as Jennifer Palmer reports, parents want to know why and where the money would be spent. 
A tug of war is taking shape between a parent advisory council and the Vancouver School Board as each side looks at the future of Graham Bruce Elementary in East Vancouver. One, parents say, isn't clear. And sadly, this may be the last sports day on the whole field. If the subdivision plan goes through, we're not sure what will happen to our field. The memories, they'll never forget. Melanie Chang went to this school. Now her two kids do. Residents in the Joyce Collingwood area fought to keep this school open a few years ago. Now they're fighting to keep its field intact. I would like the VSB to transparently plan in consultation with the school community, with the parents, with the people who live here. The VSB says Bruce Elementary has a larger site area than the average Vancouver Elementary School. District staff is proposing to subdivide the eastern portion of 0.39 hectares to either potentially sell it or long-term lease it to generate capital to address commitments and priorities they say would benefit all VSB students. And I just want to be very clear, there is no speak of selling any of the land. The only thing that's currently being spoken about in regards to that elementary school is the engagement process as to whether or not a small strip of land at the outside of the of the school field is surplus to the district needs. Bruce Elementary was built in the 1960s. At present, 270 students attend, and Chang says more are expected next year and that the community is growing. She adds instead of proposing to subdivide the land, the school needs to be fixed. This building is the most vulnerable structure at highest risk of widespread damage or structural failure in the event of an earthquake. As we receive uh, funding from our ministry, all of that information is shared uh, with our community. The VSB says no decision will be made without a public engagement process taking place. We will need public lands at some point in the future. Disposing of public lands is a short-sighted solution. Jennifer Palma, Global News. New forecasts suggest B.C. will reach the limit of our electrical capacity far sooner than anyone thought. Keith Baldry joins us with more on this. Keith, what is driving all of this demand and what's the plan going forward? Yeah, pretty big deal, Chris. This is B.C. Hydro's first call for power, which will take place next year uh, in 15 years. Reflective of two things, population increase big time and also our switch away from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Here's how the numbers break down. 15% increase in electricity demand is forecast over the next de decade or so. Also, uh, it matches a 25% growth expectation in population. That's driving demand for electricity. The more people we have, the more electricity we need. All new electricity that is going to be acquired must be 100% renewable. That means hydro, wind, and solar for the most part. As an example of what we're talking about, the need for it, 90% of all new car sales in BC must be electronic vehicles by 2030. That's a pretty ambitious target. But David Evey, the Premier today, talking about the need for this has been accelerated because there's an accelerated need for electricity. This power call wasn't supposed to take place for some time. It's been moved up because our population is increasing and our demand for electricity is going to become endless. The need for clean energy, including wind and solar power in our province, has accelerated. BC Hydro's filing indicates we require about 3,000 gigawatt hours per year of renewable energy starting as early as 2028, a full three years earlier than previously estimated. To put it another way, that's enough electricity to power 270,000 homes in our province. 
So some pretty ambitious targets. Can we get to 90% of all vehicles being EVs by 2030? Uh, some skepticism attached to that, but I can tell you we went from 5,000 electronic vehicles in 2016 to 100,000 on the road today. BC has the highest percentage of EVs anywhere in North America. See them everywhere now, don't you? All right, thanks very much, Keith. She booked a flexible flight only to find out it was anything but. I am just asking for my money back. How an Air Canada customer was charged twice for a flight and why she couldn't get anyone to help her until Consumer Matters stepped in. Plus, the auto theft epidemic in our country, the cost to Canadians and the changes recommended. Good evening. Traffic is in full-on recovery mode here, southbound on Highway 99 through Surrey after clearing a broken-down vehicle at the Serpentine River. Are you wildfire ready? Whether staying close to home or traveling, be aware of wildfire conditions. Learn more at wildfireready.gov.bc.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a traffic jam on Highway 99. An Air Canada customer is sharing her travel nightmare after she says she was charged twice for a single round-trip ticket. It happened when she went to make a modification on the original reservation. And Consumer Matters' Ann Drua is standing by now with the details. Ann. Thanks, Chris. Crystal Fernandez purchased two round-trip tickets to the Philippines through Air Canada. She says she even paid extra purchasing the Economy Flex option in case she had to modify her tickets. But that option didn't pay off when she tried to use it. I am just asking for my money back. Crystal Fernandez describes the overwhelming stress she's experienced ever since she was charged twice for an Air Canada flight. I don't have extra money to pay that off. Crystal's frustration with Air Canada began back in May when she booked two flights to the Philippines for her and her husband. They were also going to bring along their little dog, Mackie. The flights were scheduled to leave this December, departing Vancouver via Seoul, Korea to the Philippines, returning home to Vancouver with a connecting flight through Hong Kong. Once those tickets were booked at a cost of over $5,000, Crystal says she followed protocol and called Air Canada to make arrangements for Mackie to fly in the cabin. But there was a slight issue. The one going back home, uh, going back to Vancouver uh, via Hong Kong, that is actually an airline that doesn't fly your dog. Which meant Mackie couldn't fly in the cabin and the connecting flight home had to be changed. Crystal says an Air Canada agent told her to go back to her original booking online and make the modification. And so you originally booked at 11.45 a.m. and on the same day you modify at 3.17 p.m. Correct. It seems seamless until the next day when Crystal says her credit card declined at the grocery store. I called my husband and my husband's like, they charge us double. I said, what? Yeah, Air Canada charged us double. It was true. Crystal had been charged over $10,000 twice for the same round trip. When she called Air Canada for help, Crystal says the airline offered her a $10,000 voucher. That's despite her paying extra and purchasing the Economy Flex option, which usually allows customers to make modifications to their booking for a fee. I've been begging almost down on my knee to really ask them, like, Please, I've done everything correctly. Airline passenger advocates argue this is not the way to do business in Canada. Even if, say, Air Canada were to say that it was a passenger who made a mistake, generally making a mistake is 
not a basis to uh, keep someone's money this way. Air Canada told Consumer Matters our customer relations teams are looking further into what occurred with this booking and will be getting back to the passengers. But Crystal is still waiting, now left on the hook for thousands of dollars. They are just deaf. They don't even have that soul or heart to even listen to me. And so far, Crystal has not heard from Air Canada. As for what passengers should do when they find themselves in a similar situation, airline passenger rights advocates recommend contacting your credit card company to dispute the charge or take the airline to small claims court, which in B.C. is the B.C. Civil Resolution Tribunal. And if you have a consumer issue for me, you can reach me at consumermatters at globalnews.ca. Right, and let's hope she gets some satisfaction quickly and we'll wait for that update. Thank you. All right, the Canadian Finance and Leasing Association has released a new report showing the number of stolen cars has tripled across some parts of the country over the last several years. The association is calling for governments, insurance companies and car owners to make changes to address the billion-dollar problem. Global's Kyle Benning has more. It's a billion-dollar problem, and a national organization is putting forward solutions to address auto theft. The Canadian Finance and Leasing Association, or CFLA, says a car is stolen every six minutes in Canada. The impact of the auto theft epidemic that we're facing is roughly a, a billion dollars a year uh, for, to, to Canadians, both in terms of insurance premium payouts, at consumers out of pocket and manufacturers and financiers out of pocket. In Toronto, data from the city's police force shows the number of stolen cars has nearly tripled since 2015 with more than 9,600 vehicle thefts in 2022. And this year appears to be following a similar trend. The Toronto Police Department tells Global News there have been more than 5,500 cases since January 1st. While some jurisdictions haven't seen prominent spikes, the results of auto theft are just as costly on car owners, insurers, and financiers. In Saskatchewan, most cars that are stolen end up being returned, but it still comes at a price. They've been driven so poorly, treated so badly by the people who stole them that uh, about half of them are written off anyway um, because uh, the damage is so extensive. The CFLA has put forward a number of recommendations like public education campaigns, re-establishing provincial auto theft teams, and better communication between federal agencies with police forces. But insurers say car owners can take small steps to prevent theft. Like putting a steering wheel lock on your car, parking inside of a garage, and installing anti-theft or tracking devices. Somebody's looking at uh, taking your car, but you make it more complex in terms of doing so, they may skip by your car, um, which again protects your possession. Kyle Benning, Global News. Coming up, a tendon transplant takes a bad turn kind of horrified (laughs) to say the least the reason she's suing the hospital and the doctor that performed her knee surgery coming up and more fallout for the man who launched a verbal attack on a young girl at a track meet Good evening. An ongoing police incident here in Delta is causing just some minor delays for traffic. Westbound on Highway 17 near 80th Street, crews are on scene blocking the left lane. How can you be wildfire ready this summer? Take steps to protect your home and make a safety plan. Learn more at wildfireready.gov.bc.ca. I'm Trish Jewison in Global One, high above a crash in Delta. 
Surrey City Council met today apparently to discuss policing in the city as the province ramps up the pressure to choose a force and move forward. Janet Brown is covering the story for us. Janet, it was unclear during the early news if the meeting was over or not and what we'd hear in a result. What is the latest? Chris, we really don't have much further news to report than we did at 5 p.m., unfortunately. What we do know is that mayor and council met in camera behind closed doors for roughly two hours this afternoon here in Surrey City Hall. Media was expecting a news conference after the meeting wrapped up. We, uh, we saw media people preparing for that. And then all of a sudden, this same media person came out to tell reporters that he was told to go home. He was done for the day and that there may be, maybe a news conference on Friday morning. Now, as you say, sources tell us, nobody else official, sources tell us that there was expected to be a vote about the policing issue in Surrey. What members of council wanted to stay with the RCMP and what want to continue with the transition with the Surrey Police Service. Whether that happened, we don't know right now. And hopefully, as I say, there will be a news conference on Friday morning with the mayor. And hopefully we will have more information at that time. Back to you. Another strange turn in, in a story that just keeps unwinding. All right. Thanks very much. Janet Brown reporting in Surrey for us tonight. Let's hope for some answers tomorrow. All right, the man accused of going on an anti-trans tirade at a youth track and field competition in Kelowna is being reviewed by a sports hall of fame in Saskatchewan. As we reported on Wednesday, the man accused a nine-year-old girl of being transgender, saying she shouldn't be allowed to compete in the girls' shot put event. The girl's mother, who says her daughter had a short haircut, was stunned by the attack. Get that boy off the field sort of thing. Um, and then it took a minute to realize that they were talking about our daughter, but he wouldn't let it go. This gentleman wouldn't let it go. Um, kept badgering and yelling, demanding certification of her being female. It turns out the man who we are not identifying is enshrined in the Prince Albert Sports Hall of Fame. The president of that Hall of Fame confirms its board of directors will meet next week to discuss the situation. The man in question has reached out to several media outlets denying the allegations. In Health Matters, our next story could be a little cringe-inducing, so be warned. A medical malpractice suit has been launched against the Interior Health Authority and a surgeon. A woman received a tendon transplant to repair a badly damaged knee, but according to the lawsuit, that tendon was improperly stored for days before it was actually implanted, and that put the patient at risk. Catherine Urquhart has the details. 61-year-old Marilyn Rogers used to work as a heavy equipment operator. Now she is on compensation and unemployed after a disturbing mix-up at East Kootenai Regional Hospital in Cranbrook. Well, now I'm not independent anymore. That's why I'm with my daughter in Calgary until I figure this all out. In 2021, Marilyn underwent surgery to repair a torn ACL in her knee, agreeing to receive an allograft tendon from a cadaver. One month later, Interior Health told her the tendon had been stored improperly. I was kind of horrified, <laughs> to say the least, yeah. Marilyn has filed a civil suit against Interior Health, the hospital and doctors. The concern for her as a result of that 
was the prospect of an increased risk for infection based on the improperly stored allograft, as well as material breakdown of the tendon itself. Marilyn wasn't advised of the error for several weeks and then had to undergo another surgery two months later. Interior Health declined comment, but a letter to Marilyn acknowledges fault, saying, the error resulted from confusion regarding the appropriate compartment of a new refrigerator-freezer unit to store the allograft. The allograft should have been stored in the freezer at a temperature of between minus 20 and minus 40 degrees Celsius. Accidentally, the allograft was placed in the refrigerator section at a temperature of 3 degrees Celsius. These refrigeration units are designed to keep these tendons and human organs from cadavers at a cold temperature so that they can safely be implanted into British Columbians. The lawsuit alleges things fell through the cracks. The lawsuit is seeking damages for lost earnings, future care, and pain and suffering. Because I was so independent, that the loss of that in itself is quite devastating. A just-filed statement of defense acknowledges improper storage of the body part, but denies the plaintiff has suffered any injury, loss, or damage. Catherine Urquhart, Global News. Still ahead, the chainsaw artist. How Randy Gauthier learned to turn a log into just about anything. And later in sports, an update on the condition of O-lineman Philip Norman, who collapsed at Lions practice yesterday. Let's get a quick check of the weather now with Christy Gordon and a slight change coming in the weather pattern, Christy. Yeah, it's welcome news, absolutely, when it comes to the forest fire fight. I know some people don't want the sunshine to go, but it's definitely needed for this time of year, and it's going to be felt right across the province. BC Wildfire Service, very it says very clearly, though, don't let down your guard because it's only going to take a couple of days of warmth, and we're right back into it. In fact, we still have numerous areas under a high to extreme forest fire danger rating. But here's a look. We have a big dip in temperature expected. In fact, we're going to drop to below seasonal values with highs reaching only 14 or 15 degrees. It's almost sweater-like weather. We are going to warm up as we head towards the end of the week. And then, it's, so it's a good four to five, six days of this. Meanwhile, for those of you in the interior, two more warm days before drop in temperature is expected for you. We are expecting rainfall for your region as well. Forest fire danger rating significantly different across the southeastern corner of our province, but you can see it's high to extreme in many areas still. We'll likely see that transition over the next little while, but uh, it won't take much to bring it back. We do have a cold front that's going to swing across the region very weak, but that's going to bring showers to our region tomorrow and gusty conditions. And even into the weekend, we are expecting cloud and a chance of showers with a risk of thunderstorms right across the province. So there's your Thursday forecast, everyone. We are today's Thursday, your Friday forecast. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Southern interior region and dry conditions for you. We'll see rain on the outer coast of Vancouver Island, a 40% chance of showers for our region, and then a 60% chance for the metro Vancouver area. Here's a look. We are expecting certainly cooler conditions as we head into early next week and wet weather. Tonight's center window is weather window coming to you from Kamloops. Colin capturing this really adorable moment, and I'm thinking that it's a mother and a little one, but I'm not sure. Maybe it could be, you know, a partner, you know, a could couple. Be. I don't know. But it yeah. sort of looks like a baby. Still a very cute little kiss on the kiss mm -hmm. on the lips there. All right. Mm -hmm.
Thanks very much, Gordo. Here is Squire now with a look ahead to sports and a yeah, big game for Canada soccer. Yes, down in Las Vegas. Been quite a week for Las Vegas. Uh, he scored at the World Cup and he has scored again for Canada. David to Davies. He has options. Davies! Alfonso, Alfonso Davies has led Canada into the championship game at the CONCACAF Nations League down in Vegas. Great stuff. And from tree faller to chainsaw carver, how Randy Gauthier is leaving other artists in the dust. It's going to be a big, big weekend for the Lions. Well, I think they've sold out the bottom bowl already, or they're close to it. Yeah. They'll have a good crowd for the opening game. Ladies love football. And Cool J, apparently. <laughs> I saw them setting up the stage for LL yeah. Cool J today. Anyway, the uh, BC Lions were actually back practicing today for that home opener, which is Saturday afternoon, 4 o'clock against Edmonton. Of course, they had to cancel practice yesterday when offensive lineman Philip Norman collapsed on the field and was taken to the Royal Columbian Hospital. He was given an EKG when he got to the hospital yesterday. It came back normal, but he's still there. And head coach Rick Campbell provided this update on his condition. He's alert, conscious, in the hospital. I saw him this morning. Um, they're still running tests on him, trying to figure out exactly what happened. So uh, the good news is he's under great care and um, and and stable and all that, but it's still to be determined on, on what the next steps are, and uh, he'll be in the hospital until they um, feel comfortable with him, uh, you know, discharging him. There's a lot of emotions that go with it. We all agreed we think it's good for us to get back out here and practice today and, um, and actually practice like we mean it. I think that's what, what Phil would want, so um, we're going to do that today and, and keep getting ready for a big game on Saturday. At the same time, keep him in our thoughts and uh, and let the medical professionals do their thing. Semi-final of the Nations League in CONCACAF. Canada against Panama. Winner takes on the winner of the U.S. and Mexico. That game is uh, yet to start. And this is Jonathan David doing what Jonathan David does. Score goals to give Canada the 1-0 lead in the 25th minute. Panama had some chances, but Milan Boriam was equal to all of them. Nice save there off the free kick from Fidel Escobar. Then in the uh, second half, Kyle Lahren with a great chance, but the Panamanian keeper, Orlando Mosquera, makes a nice save. That should have been 2-0. Alfonso Davies didn't start. He hasn't played since April 22nd because of a hamstring injury, but he comes in the game, and not too long after that, he does this. Now that's a shot. Top of the net, 2-0 the final, so it'll be Canada in the final on Sunday against either the U.S. or Mexico. The U.S. Open golf tournament this year is in Los Angeles at the Country Club. Adam Hadwin's there, showing no ill effects from being tackled on the green Sunday, but that was an eagle putt that just missed. Would knock in the birdie even par after 18. Nick Taylor, who of course won the Canadian Open with that 72-foot putt on the fourth playoff hole. Great tee shot here. you think he'd be able to make that putt, but he actually missed it. So he's even par. I think through 15 right now. Ricky Fowler, what a day he had. Fowler had it all going on here. Shot a 62. He's tied with Xander Shoffley 
for top spot right now. Here's another great Fowler shot. Out of the sand, that almost went in. The 62 lowest U.S. Open round ever. So this course is very forgivable in round number one, especially on the 15th hole. Matthew Pavon on the 15th hole. It's a par three, incidentally. So this is an ace. Same hole, a few hours later, Sam Burns, who's still on the course at two under par. We're going to show Sam Burns. Oh, yes, we are. There he is right there. So this is Sam's ace. Again, 15th hole. Above the hole, pull the string, it's in. Adam Svensson was plus one, Roger Sloan plus two, and they are both done. Wanted to show you this from last night. This is a Vancouver Canadians against the Hillsborough Hops. Sees two out, bottom of the ninth, down by one. But Garrett Spain says everybody home from Nat Bailey happy. Walks it off. Even has the uh, helmet spike. <laughs> and the Seas win it, and they're just about to play Hillsborough again at Nat Bailey Stadium. Fun last night watching the win, five to four. Last swing of the bat. The old walk-off. There you go. Lucky number 13. All right, thanks very much, Squire. The most impressive career change you ever saw. Coming up next. This is BC is brought to you by Johnston Meyer Insurance Agencies Group. 50 years of trust in your community. Jordan Armstrong is back again with a preview of what's coming up on Global News at 11. Jordan. Chris, forensic investigators remain on the scene of today's highway tragedy in Manitoba. A bus loaded with mostly seniors believed to have crossed into the path of a transport truck. As we told you earlier, at least 15 people were killed in the fiery crash near the town of Carberry. If we learn anything more about the victims or perhaps bus company involved, we'll be sure to update you at 11. Also, our Janet Brown remains camped out at Surrey City Hall. She's trying to get to the bottom of what happened at today's secret council meeting on police policing and whether anything's been decided. She's very persistent. She may just get to the bottom <laughs> of it all by 11, Chris. If anybody can, Janet can. All That's right. right. Th thanks very much, Jordan. Randy Gauthier left his career as a tree faller to follow a new calling. With no previous artistic experience, he carved out a new career. And on This Is BC, Jay Durant introduces us to a man who continues to set a very high bar for his remarkable work. Randy Goche would rather forget some of those early creations when he first took up chainsaw carving. It's not something I'd like to see photos of, so very rough. They were terrible. Let's just keep it at that. But he was determined to embark on an entirely new career as a professional artist. I gave myself some unrealistic goals. I wanted to be one of the best in two years. That didn't happen. Now he's booked solid with commissions and doing great at competitions. You're learning every day. It's fantastic. There's a weight bench in his workshop because staying strong is part of the job. Handling this gear all day takes a toll. Well, you want to have um, a masseuse at, on, on your speed dial. At the end of the day, you want to be running a much lighter saw. A nice little... Semi-detailing saw, this is 36 cc's. Crazy Woman by Magic Slim. Some blues to help drown out the constant buzz. But there's just no shaking the sawdust. 
I've been told I smell pretty good sometimes. You know, I smell like cedar. He's getting bigger and bolder with his designs, gifting many carvings now and donating some for fundraisers. Despite the demand, he's still his own harshest critic. I personally don't like any of my work, and I'd like to look back five years from now and say, that looks terrible. Which for Goche would mean not being reminded of any of these incredible pieces either. What's the, the best one or your favorite one that you've created so far? The, the next one, because <laughs> they just seem to be getting better. Jay Durant, Global News. Can't wait to see what he produces in five years. Good job. Well, if you know someone who has a great story to tell and you want to share it with the rest of us, you can right here on the News Hour. Just email your ideas to j at thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Thisisbc at globalnews.ca. Lots of sawdust, though, but you smell like cedar, at least, as Randy said. Uh, okay, last word on weather thing. before we go. Yes, so we are expecting showers tomorrow as a weak front moves across the south coast. A chance of showers also on Saturday and Sunday. And look at how cool it could be on Monday. In fact, some areas could be a touch cooler than that at 15 degrees. So potentially sweater weather, and I can't say that without thinking about <laughs> SNL. Sorry. You probably would say it better than me, Square. Sweater, sweater, sweater weather. Sweater weather. <laughs> sweater weather. That's pretty, pretty good, good job. Good. That was good. That was close. That's really good. That's good. <laughs> All right. Thanks for watching, everybody. Stay warm out there. Have a good night.